You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. On today's special programme, we're going to break down the results of this year's local elections with Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester. We'll also get analysis from two of Bloomberg's Westminster reporters, Emily Ashton and Alex Morales. So Boris Johnson's Conservatives have shed seats across England and lost control of three London strongholds in the council elections. Labour reaffirmed its dominance in the capital, taking Barnet in the north and the Tories' flagship council in the south of the city, Wandsworth, for the first time since the 1970s. But the loss of Westminster will cause most hurt for the Conservatives. The home of Oxford Street, Mayfair and, of course, the Palace of Westminster itself will now be run by Labour for the first time since its creation in 1964. Well, elsewhere in England, with counting still continuing, there is a more mixed picture, it has to be said, with modest gains for Labour, including retaking the city of Southampton. The Lib Dems had a good night, so far making more net gains of councillors than Labour. Uh, The party also took control of Hull City Council, which had been run by Labour for the last decade. Well, counting has started now this morning in Scotland and Wales. They both had all-out local elections. And in another fascinating race, the results of the Northern Ireland Assembly elections, well, they're all still to come. Well, joining us now, Bloomberg's UK government reporters, Emily Ashton and Alex Morales. Thank you so much for both uh, being with us on a hugely busy day where we're thinking about these local elections. Alex, just wrap up the results. London uh, has said it is still really doesn't uh, like the Conservatives effectively, uh, but the picture is sort of more nuanced elsewhere. What's the sort of big takeaway from all of these council seats? Well, as you mentioned, London, I mean, the Tories have lost. The Tories, Labour already dominated 
represented London, um, but the Tories have taken control of three councils. Uh, sorry, Labour has taken control of three councils that the Tories previously controlled: Barnet, Westminster, and Wandsworth. And two of those, in particular, Wandsworth and Westminster, are sort of iconic. Wandsworth has been Tory for um, more than forty years. It was Margaret Thatcher's favourite council because of its low council taxes. Uh, Westminster, um, obviously, for all the reasons that you and mentioned, is it, sort of an iconic seat. It's the centre of power. Uh, it, it's got you know. Uh, all the London t- uh, tourist results. If you look further uh, around the country, the, the results are more mixed. Um, in the north, in the north, for instance, the Tories seem to be hanging on quite well to a mm-hmm. lot of the areas that that, that Boris uh, Johnson um, sort of claimed from Labour in the 2019 general election, um, and and those are areas that Labour really would want to be claiming back um, in a general election in, in two years' time. So, so. It's, both parties can claim some victories um, and the Prime Minister's lost some seats, but it doesn't look enough to do him terminal damage. Yeah, Emily, this isn't a jobbing for Boris Johnson, is it? It's not even a rout, is it? Would it be fair to say that there's, there will be a, a modicum of, of relief in the Conservative Party this morning? Well, there was a lot of expectation management um, mm. going on in the weeks leading up to the elections. You know, they were saying, oh, we might lose 800 seats. And people were saying, well, that's not really possible. But, you know, they, they will have lost a couple of hundred by the end. And um, and then they can say, oh, it wasn't as bad as we thought. Look, but, you know, but that's all very clever expectations management to make them look better. But, yes, look, it's not been good in London. And the senior Conservatives have been openly saying that. But... It's the northern areas that Boris Johnson is very keen on preserving that support because it really speaks to who he thinks he is as a leader, this kind of levelling up prime minister, getting that red wall. Those areas seem to be holding up all right, not everywhere, but in a lot of the north and the Midlands. Um, But the south is where some Conservatives think he should really be focusing on more ahead of the general election. And it's not really just about Labour, but the Liberal Democrats have done very, very well in a lot of areas, especially in the South. And there will be some concern from the Conservative Party about that. Um, Alex, do you, how much of a read across is there really, though, from the local elections into sort of the national picture? Um, the national um, polling, you know, Labour's been ahead, but only just, and the headlines have been pretty bad for the Conservatives around Partygate in particular. Well, it can be difficult to draw sort of firm conclusions from local elections because they're often an opportunity for, for you know, the, the general population to give the government a bit of a kicking. Um, usually ruling parties lose seats, so, so that would be to be expected that the Tories would shed a few seats. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of um, what it means for the general election, that's harder to tell. I mean, these elections, certainly in England, the baseline that they should be measured against are 2018, because that's when these seats were last voted on. And that was actually a high watermark for Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, that. So you can't really compare today's results to the 2019 general election when, when obviously uh, Labour sunk to its biggest electoral defeat since 1935. So you've got to inject an element of caution into how you analyse the Tories losing a couple of hundred seats. Emily, what will Labour strategists really be thinking today? Now, gaining Westminster is very juicy. They'll be very excited about that. But at the end of the day, the Tories have 21 seats in London. If Labour win half of those at the next election... That's not going to get them into Downing Street, is it? What, what, what does it mean for, for the Labour Party? 
Yeah, and I think you're right about London, that demographics are changing as well. So even mm. last time round, you know, there was a chance that they, they might have got these big totemic councils. Um, but yeah, for, for Labour, they really, I mean, it's a good day for them. Obviously, they can point to these big wins, um, but they, the Tories will be pointing out, look, they're actually not making the gains that they need to in the north and outside London generally to, um, you know, to provide that route to power uh, in the next general election, which is about two years away, probably. But, you know, what we need to remember is that he doesn't, Keir Starmer doesn't necessarily need a Tony Blair-style landslide victory to win power. He could win power um, without an overall majority. That, you know, that could still happen, and Boris Johnson could easily be kicked out as Prime Minister under those circumstances. He, Keir Starmer will be very pleased to be making progress at all, and especially in councils like Barnet, where there's a big Jewish population, and he, he's proving, he, he will think, he will say that he is proving that he's moving on from the Jeremy Corbyn era, which had all these claims of anti-Semitism hanging around that. Mm. Um, broadly though on the issue that is kind of foremost for voters I mean all the kind of the polling uh, the analysis shows that inflation and the cost of living crisis is something that voters are really worried about Alex and only yesterday the Bank of England was talking about we could see more than 10% inflation in October and a slowing down of economic growth I mean this is really kind of key, isn't it? Energy prices, tax rises that we've seen under the Conservatives. Um, there's a there's a crisis for consumers in Britain. Yeah, I mean, certainly for the Conservatives, there's a danger that if these economic problems carry on for, for months and months and months, the electorate's going to get weary of, of rising prices and, and the tighter squeeze on household budgets. Um, and if you look at the Bank of England's forecast from yesterday, it does look like there are going to be some significant economic problems into next year. Um, inflation's running at extraordinarily high levels, uh, at the highest, highest in 30 years, and it looks like it will probably be the highest in 40 years soon. Um, so all of those things will be coming up on the doorstep, um, as will, I, th I think, um, Partygate, although to a lesser extent, it sort of depends on which part of the country you're in, I, I think, how much Partygate is of importance. I think it, it, in in parts of the south, it's it sort of disgusts traditional Tory voters. Um, in, in parts of the north, there are a lot of people who were won over by Boris Johnson and, are, and they sort of priced in those sort of foibles of his. Um, they're not so bothered by Partygate, but the cost of living is something that could really hit them. Yeah, I mean, on that subject, we've talked endlessly about the future of uh, uh, about the future of the prime minister, but this is not a knockout blow, is it? Uh, we're going to go back to talking about Party Eight. I mean, more uh, more stuff from the police over the coming months, and of course, the cost mm. of living is going to be continually in focus, isn't it, over the next few months? Yeah, but I think there is a wider point about voters feeling like Boris Johnson is perhaps one of those politicians that they didn't want him to be. So you, know, you think about the Red Wall, I think Boris Johnson was voted in as Boris Johnson, not particularly as a Conservative leader. He had that kind of X factor, that celebrity status. Um, and they thought he was almost anti-establishment. Well, Partygate kind of it doesn't play well with that because it, it kind of shows that he's taking them for granted. And a lot of these voters feel already taken for granted by decades of a Labour council and a Labour government that they say didn't really help them in areas of the North um, with pro levels of prosperity. Um, and I think he has to, he has a lot to prove to them that he he is very serious about being a leader 
and um, not and not falling into the trap of just oh they'll vote for me next time anyway. You know, they mm. they really need to feel that he's on their side. Um, a word, Alex, then on the other nations and regions. I mean, Scotland, that again, the, the, the idea of Scottish independence and uh, of what's happening in terms of any kind of Tory showing in Scotland is quite important to think about, along with Northern Ireland, with the results we don't have of that, uh, of Stormont. But what are the kind of nation and region aspects of this? Well, uh, in, ter- in terms of Scotland, we have to see the results, but it, 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 it seems like the, fo- the, the forecasts seem to be that Labour's probably going to overtake the Conservatives as the second party of Scotland, which is, which is sort of, a, it's quite significant for Labour because Scotland was once one of their biggest redoubts um, until the SNP wiped them out um, a, a couple of general elections ago. Um, but at the same time, that may be more to do with the Tories going backwards in Scotland mm. than Labour going forwards. The, the SNP are still looked to be the dominant party. Um, across in Northern Ireland, there's a big, uh, there are big, cons- well, I mean, there are big concerns amongst unionist community, community that um, Sinn Féin, for the first time, um, will be the biggest party, and that means they'll be able to nominate the first minister. Now, because yep. of the way power sharing works in Northern Ireland, you also need a deputy first minister um, to, to have to have an administration. And the DUP, if they're the second party, haven't yet said whether they would nominate a, a, a deputy first minister. So you might end up with a sort of gridlock in Northern Ireland again. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, the co-chair of the Conservatives, Oliver Dowden, says that Labour's gains aren't hugely significant in the way they were before Tony Blair was voted into number 10. There have been lots of difficult headlines for the past few months. If you set these results against those difficult headlines and if you set them against the fact that we've been in power for the past 12 years, we're really not seeing the kind of results, say, you saw two years before 97... Meanwhile, the Labour leader says that these results so far do show his party is, quote, back on track for the general election. This is a massive turning point for the Labour Party. From the depths of 2019, we're back on track now for the general election, showing what the change that we've done, the hard change we've done in the last two years, what a difference it has made. Well, let's continue our deep dive into the results with elections. Guru Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester. Rob, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, let's uh, start off with the biggest region in the UK, uh, what we always refer to as a battleground city. But would it be fair to say that London is not really that much of a, of a battle anymore? Yeah, London is uh, increasingly more of a stronghold for one party rather than a battleground city. That that, that, uh, name is a bit out of date these days. It was a very strong night for Labour in the capital. I mean, they've possibly been flattered a little bit by the fact that last time in 2018, they fell narrowly short in quite a lot of seats in several councils. This time, they've been able to flip all of those seats. Uh, which has produced some pretty headline-grabbing results in Westminster, in Wandsworth, uh, and so forth. But 
I mean, make no doubt about it, this is now uh, an almost entirely Labour city. And uh, given the trends we've seen in the past decade, it's, it's going to be difficult for the Conservatives to reverse that. Yeah, I think that's quite um, kind of... Uh it's fascinating, really, given um, the sort of money-making centre, I suppose, in some senses of the UK. Um, Professor John Curtis has uh, also been giving his view, saying that outside the capital, Labour has actually made a slight net loss. Rob, what's your view on the kind of broader picture in England? Yeah, I mean, it's a quite a mixed and complex set of results, this one, which makes it a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure election for the politicians mm-hmm. looking to spin their particular lines. So Labour are obviously going hard on how well they've done in London because it looks the best for them. Outside of London, they're treading water at best, though it should be remembered that 2018 was a pretty strong result for them in terms of their overall national share of the vote. Of course, they want to be looked to be making gains, but it, it, that, that sets a high bar for it. If we compare the results this time with the same wards in 2021 or in 2019, we see a much better Labour performance. But they aren't um, advancing on 2018 very much, as uh, I think Oliver Dowden was saying on your clip just there. These aren't looking like... Tony Blair late 90s results. So they are looking rather better than most of the Labour results we've seen in about the last 10 years or so. What, if anything, Rob, can we say about the Red Wall? Because I think it should be noted that, of course, these elections were last fought in the north of England in 2018, which is when the Red Wall was intact, wasn't it? So this is not, these aren't, this isn't the change from the, the Red Wall crumbling in 2019. This, this is the change on four years ago, isn't it? Yes, and the Red Wall is one of those areas where each party gets to pick their own story in a way. Um, Labour don't seem to be making a big uh, gain in Red Wall areas. Uh, The Conservative vote is definitely holding up better in the most leave bits of England. On the other hand, if you look at the performance this year compared with last year, where, of course, Labour had a real tough time uh, in the Red Wall, leading to a a lot of negative uh, stories uh, for their leader... It's a very big shift, and actually Labour's performances are best in the most red wall type areas in terms of lead voting, in terms of demographics, um, uh, when compared to last year. So that claim that they're back on track, they're making progress in the areas that matter, that claim holds up much better if we compare uh, these results with the baseline of last year than if we compare these results with the baseline of 2018. Um, what's your view then on what's going on for Conservatives? Um, uh, I, we were talking to our reporters just earlier. They were saying, and they are in Westminster day in, day out, talking to politicians and doing the rounds. They were saying that there's been lots of expectation management, of course, from everybody, but including from the Conservatives because of Partygate, because of the cost of living scandal. What can we take away from this? Where are the Conservative heartlands? Where is Boris Johnson best place to fight? Is it in the sort of heartlands of the South or is it in the new Red Wall? Tell us more. Uh, Well, I mean, there's still a fairly strong sort of Brexit effect on Conservative performance. They're doing best in areas that are more leave voting. But even more broadly than that, there seems to be a real heartland discomfort, southern discomfort story coming out of these results so far. The Conservatives are going back most where they start strongest. And they're kind of leaking votes in all directions. It isn't like this is a sort of big... Um, endorsement of the main opposition party, it seems more like voters that are generally 
not very happy with the Conservatives and just voting for any of a number of different alternative options, Labour in some places, Lib Dems in very many places, Greens in some places, local independent groups in other places. It's basically uh, getting onto any uh, electoral life raft they can to get off a ship that they see as, as, as sinking. And obviously, an awful lot of Conservative MPs, indeed the majority of Conservative MPs, represent more traditional, rural, southern, somewhat remain-leaning in some cases, heartland seats, and they will be looking at results like this with the Tiverton by-election to come as well and thinking, well, this, this, is, this is quite ominous. Because mm. de- decent gains for the Lib Dems in many parts of the country. I wonder if we're seeing uh, a, a sort of tactical... What's the opposite of unwind? A tactical wind-up, a, a return to the tactical voting that we saw uh, for many years against the Conservatives. Do you think that they need to be worried that Labour and Lib Dem voters are going to start putting their crosses in the correct place to unseat their local Conservative? Well, I mean, one very heavy caveat we need to put on this is that Lib Dem performance in local elections, if we go back to before coalition times, didn't always used to translate across very clearly into general election performance. And one possible interpretation of what we're seeing here is that the Lib Dems are recovering their status as kind of none of the above party, the protest party. So they're able to pick up support all over the place from voters who don't like the incumbent government very much but aren't convinced by the opposition. That doesn't necessarily translate into tactical voting because, of course, when you're tactical voting, your motivation is to oust the government and probably put the uh, opposition into power. All of that said, if you're a Lib Dem, you're much happier if you've got a strong local government presence in a seat where you want to encourage tactical voting because it makes you more credible as an alternative option. Hmm. Okay. Um, what about Scotland? A Scottish Conservative source t- telling the BBC the situation north of the border is, quote, not looking good. And, of course, pointing the finger of blame towards the Prime Minister. I mean, uh, Conservatives in Scotland and Boris Johnson in particular not seen as popular there at all. Well, it's very early days of Scottish results. They've just started declaring in the last mm. half hour or so. We've got a few dozen of them. But so far... That picture is, is about right. It's not looking very good for them. They seem to be going backwards um, uh, quite a bit. Um, and it looks like they may well fall behind Labour uh, into third place in terms of, of overall uh, vote share. The SNP looks to be having a good night once again. Um, uh, whether or not this is down to Boris Johnson's unpopularity, particularly, it's a bit too early to tell. But clearly they're not having a good night north of the border either, or a good morning, as it should be. <laughs> Robin, uh, a number of um, mayoral results. I don't know if any of those you would like to pick out as particularly uh, significant, but something which was certainly significant was that referendum result in Bristol. And as far as I remember, this is the first time that any uh, significant city has actually uh, decided to get rid of their mayor rather than introduce one. Well, you may well just have annoyed the citizens of Hartlepool because they did the same thing, I believe, <laughs> a little while ago. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's, it's the largest place to do so, I think. And I've, I've not looked... I mean, this, this will be an interesting one to look into what the motivations were. But, I mean, two, two things probably worth pointing out. One, they do have a city region mayor as well now. And I do wonder if one factor there might be mm. that voters say, well, you know, we're quite happy to have one mayor, but why do we need two? Mm. And the city region mayor came after the uh, city mayor was introduced. Secondly, there were no other elections in Bristol today. So it was, I think, a very low turnout event. Uh, And so voters who were indifferent or slightly satisfied with the mayor, you know, 
fine type thing. They may well not have bothered to vote in this referendum, whereas voters who, for one reason or another, had an axe to grind about it, may well have turned out in larger numbers. That might have influenced the result. But it is an interesting development, to be sure. OK, so that on, on mayors. Just a last thought then, whilst we have you on. What do you think the mood of the nation is? As we, Yes, we're still getting the local election results out, but the next big one could be the general election in a year or two. We're in the midst of this terrible cost of living crisis. The Conservatives have had a lot of scandals. Labour are trying to move ahead. Keir Starmer sort of declaring victory. What do you think the mood of Britain really is right now? Well, I mean, I think if you were to zoom out and take the view um, from from the space station right up in the sky mm-hmm. and look at these results, you would say, well, this is clearly a government that, that voters are, are unhappy with and restive about because it's leaking votes uh, in, in a number of directions. But at the same time, it's not a particularly convincing performance by the main opposition party either. So it seems like voters are in that kind of don't quite know which side to pick, uncertainty, lost faith in the government, yet to be fully convinced by the opposition. Kind of reminiscent, in fact, perhaps of the mid-late 2000s when the Lib Dems also did well in local elections. Voters are kind of, the shine had come off New Labour. Voters had lost faith in New Labour. They weren't yet convinced the Conservatives were an option. They were willing to back into government again. This kind of pattern of results we're seeing, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that. Um, so, so, yeah, but I guess the other question, given that we're going to see further cost of living increases coming into the autumn, is, is that going to start to push more voters off the fence? Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.